Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, Cardio Nerds family, this is Amit. On behalf of all of us at Cardio Nerds, we are thrilled to bring to you our Decipher the Guideline series for the 2022 AHA ACC HFSA Guideline for the Management of Heart Failure. Get ready for short and bite sized, high impact clinical vignette based questions designed to highlight core concepts based on cutting edge evidence that are relevant to your practice. The cases we use are hypothetical and created for educational purposes only. This series was developed by the Cardio Nerds and created in collaboration with the American Heart Association and the Heart Failure Society of America. It was created by 30 trainees spanning college student through advanced fellows with mentorship from Dr. Anu Lala, Dr. Robert Menz, and Dr. Nancy Schweitzer. We thank Dr. Judy Bazanson and Dr. Elliot Antman for their guidance along the way. So friends, join us as we get to learn about the heart failure guidelines and beyond from 16 leading faculty experts. And now, let's get nerdy. The following question refers to section 9.5 of the 2022 AHA ACC HFSA guideline for the management of heart failure. The question is asked by Keck School of Medicine, USC medical student, and cardio nerds intern Hirsch Elhan. Answered first by Duke University cardiology fellow and cardio nerds fit ambassador, Dr. Amon Kunzal, and then by expert faculty, Dr. Fabian Butler. Dr. Butler is an advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist, president of the Baylor Scott and White Research Institute, senior vice president of the Baylor Scott and White Health, and distinguished professor of medicine at the University of Mississippi. Dr. Butler, it is such an honor to have you here with us. Quite the opposite. It's an honor for me to be invited and, and really looking forward to this discussion. All right, Hirsch, what questions do you have for us? Yeah, thanks so much, Bree. So um, I wanted to ask about, about this patient, Mrs. Hart. She's a 70-year-old woman who's hospitalized for a two-week course of progressive exertional dyspnea, increasing peripheral edema, and mental status changes. She has a history of coronary artery disease, hypertension, and heart failure, for what she takes aspirin, gerosamide, carvedilol, lisinopril, and spironolactone. On physical exam, she is afebrile, her blood pressure is 80 over 60, and her heart rate is 120 beats per minute. Her respiratory rate is 28 breaths per minute, and she is adding 92% on room air. She is sitting upright and is confused. Her JVP is elevated, and her cardiac exam reveals an S3 gallop. There is ascites and significant flank edema on abdominal exam. Her lower extremities have two-plus pitting edema through her knees and are cool to touch. Her labs are significant for an elevated serum creatinine of 3 from a baseline of 1 milligram per deciliter. Her lactate is 3 millimoles per liter, and her liver enzymes are in the 300s. Which of the following is the most appropriate initial treatment? Option A, increase carvedilol. Option B, start dibutamine. Option C, increase lisinopril, and option D, start nitroprusside. And, uh, and I mean, you know, I would, I would love your help figuring out what the next step should be for this patient. Sure thing, Harsh. Thanks for the great question. Looks like Ms. Hart's in a little bit of trouble. The correct answer here is B, start dobutamine. This patient with progressive congestive symptoms, mental status changes, and signs of hypoperfusion and end organ dysfunction meet the clinical criteria of cardiogenic shock. The class one recommendation is that in patients with cardiogenic shock, intravenous inotropic support should be used to maintain systemic perfusion 
and maintain end organ performance. Their broad availability, ease of administration, and clinician familiarity favor such agents as first line when signs of hyperperfusion persist. Interestingly, despite their ubiquitous use for management of cardiogenic shock, there is a lack of robust evidence to suggest a clear benefit of one agent over another, something that we see in the CCU often. Therefore, the choice of a specific agent is guided by additional factors, including vital signs, concurrent arrhythmias, and honestly, availability. For this patient, dobutamine is the only inotrope listed. Although she's tachycardic, her lack of arrhythmia makes dobutamine relatively low of risk and does not outweigh the potential benefits. Let's go through the other answer choices too, just to see why those are less ideal. So choice A, increased carvedilol, is not correct. Beta blockers should be continued in heart failure hospitalization whenever possible. However, in a patient with low cardiac output and signs of shock, beta blockers should be discontinued due to their negative inotropic effects. Choice C, increased lisinopril, is also not correct. Afterload reduction is reasonable to decrease myocardial oxygen demand. However, given her hypotension and renal dysfunction, increasing lisinopril could be potentially dangerous and further exacerbate both. Furthermore, given her tenuous hemodynamic status, it would be more beneficial to start an IV medication as it's easier to monitor and rapidly titrate. And finally, choice D, start nitroprusside, is not correct. IV vasodilators are helpful, certainly, for improving cardiac output in high SVR states when the patient is normotensive or even hypertensive. However, this patient is hypotensive, and so vasodilators should be held. So the main takeaway really here is in patients with cardiogenic shock, intravenous inotropic support should be used to maintain systemic perfusion and preserve end organ performance. Dr. Butler, we would love to hear your thoughts on this too. Yeah, I mean, you know, you uh, really pointed out all the, the things that I would have said for each of the, the potential answer choices. The question comes up, you know, increasing carvedilol obviously is, is, is not a good option. Lysinopril and nitroprusside are obviously not good options. Uh, but the question does come up, uh, which inotrope to use? So I think the use of inotrope, I mean, this person uh, does not have anything in their history that would not be suggestive of cardiogenic shock and not be suggestive of, uh, you know, a definitive diagnosis, right? So their systolic blood pressure is lower than their heart rate. They are confused. Their uh, creatinine uh, has a bump, lactate levels. So, so I think they, they do need therapy. Now, the question is, you know, which inotrope do you use? Do you use uh, dobutamine or do you use uh, milrinone? So uh, I, I will sort of try to steal case for, for both of the choices and then give you sort of my uh, preference, but, but that's going to be a subjective preference. As you mentioned, uh, there, there are really no definitive data per se. So this person has been on, on carvedilol, so you would assume that their beta receptors are upregulated in the presence of beta blocker. So they would be really sensitive to dibutamine. And in this state of cardiogenic shock, Stopping the beta blockers, I think it's uh, pretty reasonable. Now, you do scratch your head a little bit when somebody is so tachycardic stopping the beta blocker. But again, this, this tachycardia is really a, a uh, compensatory tachycardia, and lowering or stopping the beta blockers is pretty reasonable. And with upregulated beta receptors, a little bit of dobutamine may take you a, a long way because of the increased sensitivity. So, so that's the reason to choose dobutamine. Now, I will make a case which probably is not that relevant to, to this particular case, but still uh, brings up some physiologic perspective. So, you know, it's, it's, it's middle of the night, you're seeing this patient and you don't have a right heart cath in place. 
you don't truly know the hemodynamics. So there comes the issue of chicken or the egg. So is, if this person was hypertensive and in pulmonary edema, you can be pretty certain that this person has a very high SDR and then giving nitroprusside makes sense. But the question is, if somebody is hypotension, uh, one can argue that this person is in a you know high SVR, really decreasing stroke volume, really c- compromising the cardiac function, leading to hypotension, poor renal perfusion, and that if you were to carefully use nitroprusside or have some afterload reduction, their hemodynamics may get better. But if you are wrong, and the main problem is decreased cardiac contractility, decreases stroke volume. Uh, and uh, a high SDR is a compensatory mechanism, and you take away the compensatory mechanism, uh, this person is going to crash on you. On the other hand, uh, if the primary problem is just contractility and giving an inotrope makes a lot of sense, and that will ease your uh, afterload issues uh, as well. Now, you're in the middle of the night, and you actually don't know which one is which. So, so nitroprusside is only vasodilator, and dubutamine is primarily a inotrope. Uh, if you choose something like milrinone, you kind of sort of get a little bit of both. So you get some degree of vasodilatation, you get some degree of inotropy as well, and and you sort of get get some benefit on on both sides. So one can make a case uh, that maybe milrinone is a little bit of a better choice. Now we don't have a head-to-head study. There was this one trial that came out in New England Journal, I think, called called Doremi trial, uh, that did not show any difference in cardiogenic shock patients uh, between dobutamine and milrinone. But if you want to sort of read in between the lines, uh, a small study, about 95, 96 patients in each arm. So it wasn't a really big study. Uh, and most of the outcomes were in favor of milrinone with a hazard ratio of ranging from 0.8 to 0.85. So about a 15% or so benefit. But none of the p-values were positive because, of course, the, there was just no power. There were small numbers. So if you sort of put all of these things together, one can make a reasonable case for milrinone. Thank you so much, Dr. Butler. You know, I, you know, as a, as a medical student, I definitely find inotropes to be pretty, pretty daunting. Um, but I think this discussion really sort of started to help clarify things for me. I mean, the other thing you can question is, you know, what's sort of the role of uh, PA catheter in this setting? And, and do you put in a Swan-Gans catheter? So cardiogenic shock, when you know the diagnosis for a fact, and then you start treating and somebody responds, doesn't necessarily mandate the use of a, of a right heart cath uh, in the patient. So the, the more classic indication is uh, you either don't know the diagnosis and you're really not sure what's going on with someone, or uh, you know what you're going on, what's going on with the patient, and you give the patient whatever initial therapy that you think is the best, but the patient is non-responsive. And in both those cases, PA catheter is, is, is a reasonable idea. Having said that, honestly, I mean, you know, in, in, in the real-life setting, a right heart cath in a person like that would be very helpful because a third axis, uh, not the issue of what the diagnosis is and not the issue of responsiveness, uh, but the dose titration and what's the optimal, you know, mixed venous set and what's the optimal uh, hemodynamics, what doses should you give, is one inotrope enough, do you need to give something else? Uh, for all of those things, dosing of diuretics, uh, I have really found the use of right heart caths very, very helpful. Uh, so again, uh, there is uh, some sort of theoretical right answers, but but in a person like this, uh, I would lean on an earlier use of right heart cath. Now, the, the guidelines will will always uh, quote uh, the NIH-funded uh, right heart cath study showing that right heart cath-guided uh, treatment for heart failure did not improve outcomes, except 
that people forget that the inclusion criteria said that you need to have a equipoise uh, for the use of right heart cath. But if clinically you think that the right heart cath is warranted, then you just put that right heart cath and those people were not enrolled in the trial. So there's a little bit of a subjectivity there. And for me, at least, a person like this, you know, I would want to put a right heart cath and these kind of patients may or may not have been represented in the trial. So yes, the restrict randomized controlled trial have not necessarily shown benefit uh, with the use of right heart cath, but there is this caveat that if the clinician felt that the right heart cath is beneficial, then those patients were excluded. Uh, so again, I, I will probably have a little bit of a low threshold putting in a right heart cath in a person like this. Dr. Butler, that was an amazing response. I think you have unequivocally said P catheters are a really great idea, especially overnight when you're, when you're worried and you're confused and you just want a little bit more data. I thought that was an amazing answer. Um, it really kind of helps clarify. You know, I've been in the CCU before as well, of course, and been kind of debating between the dobutamine, the melanone, nipride. I think just such an incredible explanation from you and really a way to kind of help rationalize why a P catheter overnight could be so beneficial. Thank you so much. And with that, I think we'll close this. Thank you so much, Dr. Butler, again. Great. Thank you so much. Great talking to you.